Good morning, everybody, and welcome to Gospel Saving Church. Praise God. I'm so glad you're here. This is your first time here. Hello, I'm Pastor Ed Spagnoli. This is Gospel Saving Church, one of God's true churches of these last days, and this is our weekly broadcast of truth from God's Word. If this is your first time here, just ho- I hope you know, and I hope you didn't come here to be entertained. Because this is not a church where you're going to be entertained. It's a church where you're going to hear the truth. And Jesus said, truth shall set you free. I don't lie to you. It's not my own spin. It's just the word of God. There's not many churches anymore that are just given the word of God. They want to entertain you. They want to make you feel good so that you know you feel good walking out the door and you feel like you're on top of the world. But the Bible is about good news and bad news. The bad news is our sin. The good news is what we could do to do it, to to get rid of that. And that's trust in Jesus and turn to Jesus. But those are hard things. Those are difficult things. And the way Jesus said to do it, well, those things are are difficult. Those things aren't easy. So praise God we're here. I'm glad you're here with us, Gospel Saving Church. Uh, If you want to join me, please, I I hope you will. I'm going to pray real quick. The, The Bible says that we can't understand the things of God unless revealed to us by the Spirit of God. So we've got to ask God's Holy Spirit to help us understand the things of the has to say to us today and, and also to help us do those things. Uh, Lord, because it, it's, uh, it's really hard to do the things that God asks us to do. They go, it goes contrary to our flesh. <laughs> so if you join me, please, in a word of prayer. God, thank you so much for your great love. Lord, thank you so much. As I already prayed today once, Lord, thank you for this new day. For, Lord, there were some people yesterday that had big plans for today. They had big plans for their future. They had big plans, oh, I'm going to do this and that and so on and so forth. And next year I'm going to go on vacation and, oh, in, in, you know, I'm going to get take the t- this time off from work and I'm going to go traveling with my family. But, Lord, they didn't get a chance to wake up today. Last night or last evening was their last evening on this earth. So, Lord, I do thank you, Lord, for those of us that are still alive and still able to listen to this broadcast or be in my home with me in McKinney, Texas to listen to this sermon or those are my faithful followers out there on SoundCloud and all over the world. Praise God that we got another day. May we praise you, Lord God, and may we glorify you, Lord, as long as you give breath in our lungs and, and the spirit of life into each one of our bodies. For, Lord, we know that it is very soon that we will go home to be with you. Lord, even if we're, Lord, with even if we're 15 years old, Lord God, let's, let's just say, Lord, somebody's right now listening to this message and they're 15 years old. In just 100 years, they will 99.999% not be here. But we think of 100 years as, oh, it's just 100 years. But in just 100 years, Lord, none of us that are listening to this message, most, most of us that are listening to this message, Lord, will not be here. So, Lord, help us to glorify you and praise you with every breath and, uh, and, and just look forward to your coming or us coming to see you if we were to die first. Teach us how to obey your word. Speak to us today, Lord. Help us to understand your word. Help us to know the things that you want us to do, Lord, and help us to do them. Help us, Lord God, to deny ourselves, Lord, the very things that we want to do, Lord, and help us to pick up our crosses and follow you. Lord, we thank you and we love you and we praise you. And we ask all these things in Jesus Christ's mighty name. Amen. Today's sermon is going to be in Acts chapter 20, verses 1 through 6. I'll give you a moment to open up your Bibles. Again, that's Acts chapter 20, verses 1 through 6. The title of our sermon today, very simple one, 
The Big Dash. Title of the sermon, The Big Dash. Hope you're there. Acts 21 through 6. I'm going to read it. You can listen along or you can read along with me, whatever you'd like to do. The Bible says this. After the uproar had ceased, Paul called the disciples to himself, embraced them, and departed to go to Macedonia. Now when he had gone over that region and encouraged them with many words, he came to Greece and stayed there three months. And when the Jews plotted against him as he was about to sail to Syria, he decided to return through Macedonia. And Sopater of Berea and accompanied him to Asia, also Aristarchus and Secundus of the Thessalonians, and Gaius of Derby and Timothy and Titus and Triumphus of Asia. These men going ahead waited for us at Troas. But we sailed away from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread, and in five days joined them at Troas, where we stayed seven days. So we closed our last chapter 19. We finished that, and today we start a new chapter, chapter 20, verses 1 through 6. Our new chapter for today also comes with some changes of scenery for the Apostle Paul. Verse 1 again of chapter 20, after the upper had ceased, Paul called the disciples himself, embraced them, and departed to go to Macedonia. Remember, he had spent the last two years in that school of Tyrannus there in where he was, and so now he's being called off. Uh, God's got him here after the uproar had ceased. Remember with the crazy, frenzied Ephesian mob that Demetrius the silversmith had started. Now we see God calling him to go on that, what I talked about last week and maybe the week before, to go on that last, that long, last journey of his life that's going to end, remember, in Rome. But it kind of starts here. And we see him starting his first of that journey into Macedonia. He may not know this now, at the be- but, but at the beginning, excuse me, he may not know that this is the beginning of the end for him here, but by the end of this chapter, we won't get to it today, maybe in the next two to three weeks, he does realize this. You'll see this reality set in for him as in the last section of this chapter, he calls the Ephesian elders, probably the disciples here, he, that by then had just been promoted to elders by that time, he calls the elders together to say his final goodbyes to them by the end of this very chapter because he knows he won't be back. And considering his undying love, for the Christ followers and all these churches that he had planted during his ministry, especially those in Ephesus, for Paul to know and say, I won't be back, he knew something was going on. He knew, hey, I'm not going to be back because, and because, because, and well, we know why because, is because he's going to go to Jerusalem shortly, he's going to be attacked by the Jews, he's going to be arrested, and then he's going to ask to be seen by Caesar, and then he's going to go to Rome, where again I said, He ends out his life in 65 A.D. So it was a very touching moment at the very end of this chapter. Again, we won't get there now. Again, right now, verse 1, his first stop of this last journey of his life, Macedonia. First thing he does before he leaves to, uh, to go to Macedonia, he gathers all the disciples there, the Ephesian church together, to hug on them and love on them. Why? Paul really had a special connection to these Ephesian Christians. He had been through a lot of stuff. He had gone through a lot of garbage. He had been through a lot with them. And he talks about that in that last big, we're going to, it's going to be about 20 verses. It's going to, it's going to be a massive section that we're going to get through. But he talks about all the things that he went through and how his, his love for them was so intense because of all these things. And, and and I'm sure that his love was great for them because they stuck through everything 
with him. And you remember what we just studied with the great, you know, with this Ephesian mob, you know, the crazy frenzied Ephesian mob. They stuck with him, even though pretty much the whole city had turned out to attack him. And I mean, that's 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 harsh, right? You know, a whole city stands against you, yet. These Christians here in Ephesus didn't give up on him. So it's things like that that he'll talk about. Anyway, end result was, of all the things that they went through, his love and his heart was super large for these guys here in Ephesus. So the first stops of his travel on his journey are into the region or territory, territory called Macedonia. What was he going to do in Macedonia? Look at verse 2. Now, we had, when he had gone over to that region and encouraged them with many words, he came to Greece. His travel, he travels from his current location, which is Ephesus, and, and Luke tells us that he travels northwest into Macedonia. That was where Macedonia was, uh, to encourage them with many words. Uh, who was he going there to encourage with many words, though? Who would Paul, who would an apostle, who would a, a pastor, who would a leader, who would a you know, uh, an elder, who would go where to encourage with many words? Well, you don't go to encourage the lost with many words. He went to encourage those in the churches that he had planted in that region, in the region of Macedonia. Churches like, maybe you didn't know this, but the church of Philippi was in the, church, was in the region of Macedonia. The church of Berea, the church of, the, of Thessalonica, just to name a few. All of these are Macedonian churches. And again, Luke tells us that he went to these believers in these churches to encourage them with many words before he travels on to Greece. Why did he go to Greece? We'll get there in a moment. Notice this was not a trip to evangelize. This was a trip to encourage, a trip of encouragement. Why did he go all the way that he did? What, what, what was his heart? What, what, why would he go off just to encourage believers in, another, in other churches? Did, didn't they have one another to do that, I mean, usually in, in churches, there's many people. Well, he himself was following the very words that he had written in Hebrews 3, verses 12 through 15. He says this, Beware, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief and departing from the living God. But exhort, but that word also means encourage, encourage one another daily while it is called today. Lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. For we have become partakers of Christ if, it's a huge if, we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast to the end while it is said, today if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. And remember, Jesus Christ, Matthew chapter 24, verse 13, but he who endures to the end, the same shall be saved. Followers of Christ need encouragement to help them stay the course in their faith in Jesus Christ. It is so important that we're there for one another. There's no I in team. There's no such thing as a one-man army. We're all in this together. And we'll talk about in a little while in his travels how he didn't travel alone, but it still applies here. Two are better than one. A threefold cord are not easily broken. We need to stay together. And not only do we need to stay together, but we need to encourage one another in the Lord every day. And, and, and there's just so many reasons why. So many reasons why we need to be encouraging one another in the Lord every day. The world and, and the sin of the world and the sexual things of the world are so alluring 
to our flesh. They're so attractive to our flesh. All the things we can attain. All the money that there is out there to be gotten. All the nice houses and all the nice things and computers and laptops and tablets and video games and all these things that we can have that our flesh just loves. And a lot of times we need to stay careful on on how we handle these things and how we go after these things because they can so easily become idolatrous to us again. They can so easily become a snare to us. We can so easily you know, become covetousness over these things. And we know that the Bible says that anyone that lives that idolatrous lifestyle, any, 1 Corinthians 6, 9, anyone that lives this covetous, this idolatrous lifestyle shall not enter the kingdom of heaven. And we know why. That's because if you're running after this and you're running after that and you're running after this, if you're running after money, if you're running after power, if you're running after fame, who are you serving? You're serving the God of yourself. As we're all born, our very own gods of ourselves. We're born as the rulers of our own lives. And so we always got to keep ourselves in check. I, I taught this a week or two ago. And it really has been a, a great awakening in my life is, unfortunately, um, you know, and I can admit this, unfortunately, every one of us, including myself, has fallen to covetousness, to idolatrousness, you know, at, over the times. And I, unfortunately, just went through a bad spell where I went through a, a bout of covetousness. And, and you know what? I, 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 I am, I'm taking heed and, and, and standing, least I fall. I'm not going to be prideful and stand up here that I'm say I'm the most perfect person in the whole world. But I fell just a little bit ago, and I I had a huge struggle, and I wanted one thing, and it was just, I wanted it so bad, and it clouded my vision, and God was saying, you're walking away, you're walking away, you're walking away, and I was like, oh, but Lord, oh, but Lord, and so the day came. I knew I just had to cut it off, and I had been struggling with it, but I cut it off. But we need that encouragement in the Lord with one another to help us remember who's good, Who's good? The things of the world, they'll perish. The things of the world, the love of the world, the the, the lust of the world, the the cars, the the money, the the sex, the drugs, they're all just temporal pleasure, and they don't love you. They want to be served. Jesus said, if you love me, serve me. So there's two choices. But the world won't love you back. God so loved the world that he proved his love for us. He didn't just say, I love you, and then didn't do anything. He said, I love you, and then did something about it. He said, I love you, and then took action. There's a love where it's just words, and then there's a love where it's action. And Jesus and Christ and God Almighty said, I love you, and then they gave action. So, of course, this is the same way that God wants to be loved back. The world won't love you. But God will love you back. And so we need that encouragement to remember that we aren't going to get any love from the world. We aren't going to get any love from people out in the world. So many people hate me and just despise me and don't like me just because I follow Christ. And I won't compromise. I may struggle here and there like I just admitted to you that I had done a while back. But I will not compromise to the end. 
I, I keep myself encouraged. I keep my family encouraged. My family encourages me in the Lord. And we keep walking in the Lord because we keep having to remind ourselves, hey, the world won't love you, but Jesus Christ will love you. And he's the worthy, he's the one worthy to serve because he's the one that really loves you and loves you back in action, not just in words. As the world, people will tell you they love you, but then they won't do anything to prove their love for you like God and Jesus Christ do. Or if they prove to you they love you, they want your, they want something back from you. They're, they only do it as for an ulterior motive. They're like, okay, I did this for you now. Okay, come on, give it back, right? So that's, in a sense, that's what Paul, this is what he did when he went on this journey. Hey, guys, and, and he might have given them a spiel just like I gave you guys. This is what it means to be encouraged in the Lord. Uh, and again, followers of Jesus Christ need that kind of encouragement to help us stay c close in our faith and stay the course in Jesus Christ because it is so important. Well, you got to understand, once a person comes to the saving faith or saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, their journey has just begun. Once someone switches sides from serving themselves and Satan to following Jesus Christ and God Almighty, then their former master Satan, the devil, and ourselves, well, they don't like it. They don't like it. And your flesh is constantly at enmity with your spirit. The devil is constantly, he wants to try to draw you back. He wants to try to get you back on his side. He wants to try to get you back serving yourself. He wants you to get you back serving the things of the world. Becoming a slave to sin. Again, this is what his goal is to do, for he hates us at all. He hates people just because we're made in the image of God. He hates when we switch sides because we're no longer uh, deceived. We're no longer following him in the, in the things that are going to send us to hell where we're going to be with him forever. He knows that we're going to escape that and go to heaven and be with God. Now, the Bible says that no one, not even Satan, can snatch you or force you out of God's hands. And the devil knows this well. In fact, if he could steal us back by his power or by his force or, or by forcing us to, then he would bring everyone that's been saved and has escaped death and, he, and, and come into the light of Christ. And he would bring us back and he would force us to come back. But praise God, he can't. Uh, but, but although he can't snatch us or force us or bring us back by his power, a true, saved, born-again person, he can't bring us, force us to come back. Scripture says that a born-again person can turn back again to their fleshly, evil, sinful ways of serving self and stuff by their own free will. Willfully, they can do that. And, and then they become lost again, just as before they were saved or born again. And we can't, although somebody can't steal our salvation from us, we can forfeit our eternal lives of our own accord as we can again go after the things of the world and become again entangled in them and be yoked in the love of the world and the love of self. And, and unfortunately, Satan knows this. And of course, what he does is, although he can't bring us back or snatch us back, he can tempt us with these things and allure us through these things and, and get his people that are following him to kind of go after you and and try to bring you back into compromise and bring you back into the love of the things of the world, which again, once you go there willfully and you give yourself over, then you become lost again and then you lose or forfeit your eternal life. This 
is dangerous. Remember Hebrews 3, 12 through 15. Listen to these words. They're so important. Beware, brethren. Now, there's a lot of people out there that'll tell you that once saved, always saved, or OSAS isn't a real thing, but I beg to differ, and only because if you just look at these first two words, beware, brethren. Well, if I can't forfeit my eternal life, if I can't walk away from God and become as I was before by my own free will in stupidity, of course, that's, that's, that's what happens, it's stupidity. If I can't do that, if that's impossible for me to do, which is what the OSAS teaching or the once saved, always saved teaching goes, no matter what you do once you're born again, you can't be lost or you can't forfeit your salvation again. Why does Paul open up with beware brethren? What is there to beware of? And then he goes on to say, least least there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief and departing from the living God. Well, you have to be with the living God to depart from the living God. You can't depart something that you were never from. Um, My wife and son are going to go off to something today. They're going to depart the house today at a certain time, and they're going to go do something. Well, if they weren't at home and they were at, let's say, the neighbor's house, I can't say, well, they're going to depart my house at, you know, whatever time and then go here because they weren't here. So you have to be somewhere before you can depart from somewhere. And he says, beware, brethren. So brethren, he's talking to people that are with his same level of, of, of Christ following, right? That they ball of Jesus. Brethren, that's what he, you, I wouldn't call a lost person brethren. Least there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. Again, that's no force that forced me away from God, but that's something that rather I chose. Beware, be careful, danger, my brother and sister in Christ, danger, be careful that you don't even think about leaving the Lord. But 13, on, on the, here's the contrast, but exhort or rather encourage one another daily while it is called today, least, least any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. Remember what I told you? Sin can grab us, and we can let sin grab us again and then fall that way. And again, that's our choice and something that we can fall into. 14, for if we become partakers of Christ, if we hold the beginning from our confidence of steadfast to the end, we will obtain our eternal life. Ladies and gentlemen, those of us that are born again, if, 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 the big if, I could have named the sermon the big if instead of the big dash, the big if, but if we continue in the saving faith of Jesus Christ that we started in, as again, remember, Jesus, Matthew 24, 13, but he who endures to the end, he shall be saved. Truly sad Christians, there are many who have gone this way. And this is my exhortation. This is my encouragement to you today. Stay strong in the Lord and remember what He has done for you. He has loved you. He loved you when you loved sin. He loved you when you were His enemy. You made yourself your, His enemy by you rebelling against Him or by you fighting against his calling you, by you living for this world and by you living for sin, and yet he said, I love you, and he loved you even in your mess. And that's encouragement to stay strong in the Lord. Uh, I want you to listen to this 
next passage on this, and I want you to hear how dangerous, just how dangerous it really is of how easily it is to fall away from God and back into sin. Listen to the word because I want you to listen here, Matthew 7, 13 and 14, how dangerous this concept is, and just think about the word because here. Jesus said this, Enter by the narrow gate... For wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction, and there are many who go in by it. So we know there what he said. The narrow is the gate, and that means he's the gate, right? We know that through Scripture, through the book of John. Jesus is the narrow gate, right? He is the gate that his sheep come in and go out, right? For we know wide is the gate that leads to destruction, but narrow is the gate that leads to eternal life. Verse 14 because, and, and why is that so? Why is it that few go to heaven, few go by the narrow gate, and then many go in by the broad gate? Verse 14, because, there's the because, narrow is the gate and difficult is the way which leads to life. It's hard and it's difficult to be a Christian, a true biblical Christian now. Not, not our world where everybody says, especially in America, everybody says they're a Christian. Worldwide, many, 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 many multitudes say, oh, I love Jesus. Oh, I'm a Christian. But their actions don't speak the same thing as their words do. Their actions spew the devil and the ways of the devil. And yet their, their words say, oh, I love Jesus and oh, I'm a Christian. And, and that is the very reason why there's only few that go to heaven is because the, the, the way which leads to life is narrow and difficult. And that's why. That's, that's why there's many. And, of course, we can't... <laughs> you have to be saved and, and know the narrow and difficult way in order then to fall away from it, right? So, so and there are few who find it, again, because narrow is the gate and difficult is the way. So again, followers of Christ, it's beyond important that we continue to abide in Jesus Christ, following Him and His teachings, keeping Him the master of our lives, the one that we surrendered to at first when we were first saved, until the end or until He comes back to get us. Uh, that was the first part of the message. Now there's a second part of the message, which is, is likely is, is, most, is, is just as important as the first part. Getting back to our message now, but praise God for his goodness. So, so Paul goes on this journey to encourage God's true born-again kids in Jesus Christ and all the churches that he had helped plant. Then he moves on and he goes to Greece. How long does he stay? First part of verse 3, and he stays there three months. What happens? And when the Jews plotted against him as he was about to sail to Syria, he decided to return through Macedonia, and that would be on feet. Now, Greece is just down south from Macedonia on the same landmass, and Scripture says that he travels there and he stays there for three months. My guess as to why he went to Greece? Well, the church of Corinth was in the area of Greece. And again, I believe that this whole trip was encouragement. So encouragement would be the key. Now, sadly, although I believe that he was only in Greece for the encouragement of those in the church that he planted there in Corinth, this verse tells us that the Jews find out that he's there. And of course, you know, the Jews, they hate him because they're, they want to they wanna serve the law of Moses and they want to serve God the way they want to serve God. They don't want to serve God the way God wants them to serve them. And they love the law of Moses. Paul brought the new way, the way of Christ. 
And, and they hate him and plot against him, which probably means they're plotting against him to kill him. And just as he's about to sail for Syria on a boat across the Mediterranean Sea, probably to go to Antioch in Syria, that's probably where he was going, to the church there that he was, you know, started all of his missionary journeys from in the first place. He finds out they're plotting, and he decides to travel on foot uh, instead of across the water in a boat. Paul uses some common sense here. I want you to think about this. If, if you find out that some Jews or anybody are planning to kill you, and then you go to get on a boat, how many places are there actually to go once you're in a boat to escape from a group of people that are trying to kill you? Well, I could tell you right now, there's not many. But on land, as again, he decides to go to Macedonia by land on foot, how many places are there to escape when you're going through cities and when you're going through towns? There's a lot. So Paul uses common sense here that many don't use, and he decides to escape out of their hands traveling on foot where there's lots of places more for him to escape than on a boat where he's closed in by just by the sea, basically. And, you know, you can't run too many places in a boat. Not only does he decide to go on foot for safety from their attack into Macedonia, but he also sees the benefit of traveling with others. Uh, the old saying that I love, I love old sayings. My family knows those that, love, those that know me and love me, they know I love old sayings. There's strength in numbers. And as I brought up earlier, Ecclesiastes 4, 9, and 12, uh, two are better than one and the threefold cord is not quickly broken. And, travel, and Paul decides to travel with a group. He doesn't just decide to travel alone. Look at Paul's threefold cord in the first part of verse 4. And Sopater of Berea accompanied him to Asia. Now, my new King James Version, now this is the reason for the title. This is the second kind of thrust of the whole message. My new King James Bible has a big dash there. And boy, I am so glad for this big dash. It actually made the title of the whole sermon, and I just love it, and I'll explain it as I'm going on. But that's there for good reason, and because that was one distinct thought. Paul goes to Macedonia, and Sopater Abria accompanied him to Asia. I'll explain that big dash and how important it is in just a little bit, but just know it's really important. The first part of verse 4 just told us that he, Paul, and Sopater Abria go to Asia. We must also know that his threefold cord was Luke. Paul always traveled with Luke. Luke went pretty much everywhere that Paul went. I mean, from like Acts 13 to like Acts 20, the very last chapter, Luke is the one that's recording all of Paul's travels. So Luke has to be with him. And of course, that's how Paul's journeys got recorded by Luke. So we must remember that Paul was almost the entire time with Luke. So it's the three of them, the three of them, Paul, Sopater, Berea, and Luke. And these three go to Asia. And there's your safety in numbers. Now, I make the point of those three only going on to Asia for protection from the Jews together. But the important idea here is that the whole of verse 4, without the big dash, seems like it's saying that there were more than just him and Sopater and Luke and they were all traveling together. Look at verse 4. Pretend the big dash wasn't there. Maybe your version doesn't have the big dash. Maybe this verse has kind of always been kind of confusing to you because it always kind of was to me before God opened my eyes to see why the New King James translators put this there. But look at verse 4, pretend that the big dash wasn't there. So it says that Paul goes off to Macedonia and then verse 4, and Sopater and Berea accompanied him to Asia also 
Aristarchus and Secundus of the Thessalonians and Gaius of Derby and Timothy and Titus and Triumphus of Asia. Reading that verse without the big dash as a big separator and without taking the independent thought before the big dash as one complete thought and the one after the big dash as a second complete thought, the verse kind of reads in this whole section as if seven, there's seven people there that the scripture reads off, all of those together. I'm not going to read those big long names again. I'm not really big on names in the Bible, even though I read them, I don't say them well. But there's seven people that are listed off, plus Luke, the one that's not listed. So there were the scripture there, verse 4 reads as if eight people all together accompany him to Asia all at the same time. But then that's a problem when you read verses 5 and 6. Listen to verse 5 and 6, and then we see that that can't be. But again, where was the break and who did? Look at verses 5 and 6. These men going ahead waited for us at Troas, but we sailed from we sailed away from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread, and in the five days joined them at Troas, where we stayed seven days. Now listen, big question here. If all eight people would have gone with him to Asia together at the same time, who are the these men going ahead? And who is the waited for us at trust? You see, there's two groups there. Uh, that these men going ahead and waited for us at Troas. And then verse 6, lastly, who's the we that sailed away from Philippi after the days of the leaving bread and in five days joined them at Troas? 4, 5, and 6 look like two groups, while as verse 4, without the big dash, seems like it's one big group. So taking verses 5 and 6 along with 4, we obviously see that there's not just one big party of eight that went along with Paul to Asia, traveling all together with them at the same time. We see there's two groups. See, scriptures read as if they separate and went as two groups and not just as one group. Does this make sense? I see it makes sense actually too because, you know, one big group could cause a, call a lot of attention. And if the Jews were had been plotting to kill him, you know, maybe they sent people on the boat to kill him when they realized he wasn't there. They were like, "Oh man." But then they might, you know, they probably left some at home. The people at home, they could have been after him too. So maybe one group would have been, you know, too large and drawn too much attention. Why is the big dash important? Again, the big dash makes Different makes a difference between one idea before it and one idea after it. The idea of Paul going to Asia with Luke and Sopater Abria and, and are before the big dash, and then the other five men going on ahead of them to Troas in Asia and waiting for them is another idea. I just love that little golden nugget that I believe that God put there for us. I'm glad that the NKGV translators put that dash in my Bible. To me, that big dash made a huge difference in how I read the verse and how I read the section correctly. Praise God for it. It helped me. I hope it helped you. I hope you, I don't know if you have a new King James version. Other versions don't. Uh, please understand the NKGV translators didn't reinvent the wheel in this verse four with the big dash. They just put it there to clarify the two thoughts. If the big dash weren't there, and if it wasn't in the original Greek text, and I'll explain because it wasn't in the original Greek text, and I'll explain how I know that in a moment, but without the big dash, we could still easily read the verse and understand that there were uh, two groups that went to Asia separately, but to me, it was a little bit more difficult. We know the big dash was there because of the, we have an awesome translation. We don't have the original Greek text, 
Um, but we do have the Young's literal translation. And what Young did is when they had these awesome texts years and years and years ago, you know, hundreds of years ago, you know, 150 years ago, I think when Young wrote this translation, he actually did a word for literal word translation from the Bible. And what that meant was is if, you know, the Greek said, if, if the Greek with their, you know, grammatical terms and grammatical laws and rules you know, put certain words in certain places, well, then that might not match over to the English. That might be very confusing in the English, but yet that's how he did it. He wanted a word for literal word translation so that we would know exactly how the Greek put it. Well, that's what he did. And listen to Young's, the way he puts it, and listen to what he does in Acts 24 through 6, and that lets us know that there were two groups. But again, as I said, it's just a little bit more confusing. We read this. And there were accompanying him unto Asia, Sopater of Berea, and of the Thessalonians, Aristarchus and Secundus, and Gaius of Derby, and Timothy, or Timotheus, excuse me, as he was a kind of an old, you know, and Timotheus and Aristarchus, Titus and Triumphus, these having gone before, did remain for us in Troas. And we sailed after the days of unleavened bread from Philippi and came unto them at Troas in five days where we abode seven days. So you see what he did, the original word for word little translation puts an and there to let us know that there were two groups. Whereas the NKJV puts an also, not an and, with a big dash there to help us know how to separate the verse correctly and how to go, you know, what to put where and, you know, what, who's, which men went on ahead, which men went with him, you know. Again, I personally like the Big Dash version. Uh, not sure about you, but either way, big note on that idea. Most of the different Bible translations may use different grammar punctuation and some different wording, but in my biblical research over the last 19 years, most everyone are saying the same things. A lot of people get caught up with, well, that verse didn't use this one word, or that version just did, didn't, you know, you say that. And then I say, well, okay, hold on, but look at the section. Is the section still saying the whole thing? And every time I come into a thing, the section is still saying the same thing, but the, there may be a word missing here, or a couple words missing here, but it's all saying the same thing. The heart of the section is saying the same thing. You and I should really look at all the translations, not all of them like I mean every single one of them. There are some bad ones. But all of us as Christians today should look at the, all the translations that God's allowed of his word into different languages and into different, uh, like we have the NKJV and the, we have the NRSV and then we have the KJV and we have the, you know, all these different translations. We should look at them as our, they are blessings because here's why God allowed and still allows different translations of his word into languages and so on and so forth into translations, uh, the ones that are accurate to help all kinds of readers that read at different levels to understand his word. We're all not fluent in, in perfect readers. I, I am definitely not a perfect reader. As you could tell when I read the sections that I do of the Bible, uh, I don't read the best 
I have to read things over again. I'm a, I'm a very poor reader. I'm a very slow reader. And so I love the fact that and I see how that's God's grace that he's given us these awesome translations and even different languages of the Bible and, and because he wants to what? Well, 1 Timothy 2.4. He desires all men to be saved. And truly, it's almost an absolutely, actually absolutely impossible for someone to come to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ if they don't understand the vernacular or the language of God's word that they're trying to read or that they're hearing. Remember what Romans 10, 17 says. So then faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. You see, there was a time and day in our world where before our English Bibles that we have today, what we had was we had one version, and that was the Latin version. After you know, so many years, the Catholic Church had kind of taken over, and, and people had fallen in the world to the big pope, and then well, he, well, he only authorized one version, and that was the Latin version. And if you were caught with another version or another language of the Bible, let's say there was a German Bible, or let's say there was a, you know, an Ephesian Bible, or there was a Greek Bible, you weren't allowed to have that. You would have been killed. They would have killed you had they found you with another version of the Bible other than Latin. Now, why I only bring this up is because there's a, these people called the Reformers. And, and they, most of them being Catholic priests and Catholic clergymen, they saw this as a problem. And this is why the Reformers got started against the Catholics. Catholics wanted to keep the Word of God only in Latin. Reformers said, that's a problem. Guys by, by the name of William Tyndale, Martin Luther, John Wycliffe, John Huss, they were all Catholic priests or Catholic clergymen who knew Latin. And here's what happened. Here's how they got started. As they studied the Latin text of the Bible scriptures, and they heard the way the Pope translated those scriptures, and other Catholic clergymen and Catholic priests and so on and so forth, these guys, and many others, thousands actually, realized, holy camoly, the Pope and these other guys, they're not translating God's word right. They're, they're, they're mixing things up, and the way they're teaching them, and, and the problem therein lies this. At the time when the Catholic Church was doing this, the common man, the, the, let's say the 95 or 97 percentile of man back in that time, no, they didn't know Latin. So what, what they had to depend on, they had to depend on the Catholic priests and the Pope to explain the Word of God to them because they could only, they would teach it in Latin and then the, the Pope and the, the leaders, the clergymen, the, the priests would then explain that Latin that they read to the people. Well, as I just said, the Reformers got started because they realized, holy camoly, these guys, this Pope, they're not teaching that Latin like it's true. They're, they're twisting it. But the people don't know they're twisting it because they're, they just are t trusting in this guy and they think he's teaching it the right way, but they're not. And he's not. So they, they thought, oh my gosh, we need, you know what the, the world needs? The world needs Bibles in their own languages. Uh, no, you know, J Jesus, when he taught, they realized this one crucial thing. Jesus taught the people in his day in the common language. Jesus didn't teach them the word of God in a language that they didn't understand. Jesus taught them the word of God and explained them the word of God. The word that they understood and they knew, the, and, and he taught them in that language. 
And they realized, wow, if these people can't understand the Word of God because they don't understand Latin, how are they ever going to be truly saved? And, and this is the saddest thing of all. You see, the Catholic Church teaches that salvation comes by works and by being a good person. And you see, that's not what Jesus Christ taught, and that's not what the New Testament teaches about New, new Covenant salvation as in, in the end, so they were, they was, there was a separation there. And so really, in essence, the only the, 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 the absolute conclusion that we must make is that why was the Word of God being kept in Latin? And then, then we know now that the Catholic Church teaches a good person, a good work theology, and that's not the way the New Testament teaches it, and that's not the way Jesus Christ teaches it. We must then conclude that the reason that the Catholic Church was doing it that way, and then the reason why, if they found you with another version of the Bible, as far as like these fellows that I just named off to you, William Tyndale, uh, John Huss, and many others, what they ended up doing is, is the Catholic Church realized that they made other translations of the Bible into the common, land, common language of the people, and they killed them. And then they burned their copies, and they made the copies of their Bibles illegal. And they never did get a chance to kill Luther, but he had to go in hiding for many years. And he, and he was excommunicated from the church because the church did not agree with him making the Bible into the common language of the people. If you do not have a language of the Bible that you can understand, salvation will be hidden from you. And unfortunately, thousands of reformers lost their lives as a Catholic, again, simply because they yearned to get the translation of the Bible in a common language or vernacular of the common man. While the Catholics with their Latin translation, which only a few people knew how to read Latin, wanted to keep the translation of the Word of God to themselves. Again, if the common man couldn't read or listen to and understand the scriptures himself, themselves, how is he or she supposed to know how Jesus Christ taught people how to be saved eternally? The answer is they couldn't. They had to rely on other people to explain the Bible to them in that, in that language or from that language. And then this is a dangerous thing. Now, my whole thrust there, I'll get there in a minute, was that thanks be to God that we have all the translations that we do, the good ones anyway. There are some bad ones. Bad ones. What research you can figure out what those are. But thanks be to God, we have accurate and awesome translations of the Bible in languages that we can understand and even vernaculars that we can understand and even, you know, one translation to another translation that we can maybe understand a little bit more than the other translation, what God's truly, truly telling us. Praise God that we actually have those. Now, I know this might not have been the most exciting Bible study that I've ever, did, uh, that I've ever done you know, for you as, as a Sunday sermon message, but unless you are a Bible nerd like me, uh, but I could tell you that two main ideas of Scripture that I taught to you today are very super, super, super important ones, super important ones for your eternal life. The first part of that sermon was primary, primarily aimed at encouraging you, my born-again believer in Jesus Christ out there, in the Lord Jesus Christ, so that you know how super important it is for you to remain abiding in Christ and enduring in Christ until the end, whether it's your end or it's the end where He comes back to get you. And I will encourage and warn and exhort you to this day, to this right now, even this very thing. Please remember that God loved you even while you were in your stuff. Even while you were in rebellion towards Him, He loved you. 
And he gave his begotten, only begotten son to die for you on a cross so that you could see that love and respond. And that's how I want to encourage you today. Keep your eyes and your mind on that and get your mind and your eyes off of the world and off of the things of the world. These things will never satisfy you for more than just moments. And the more you go after them, the more they'll make you empty. And again, I know I've been there. I've almost fallen away myself. And I've come back and, I, and I've stayed true and I'm going to stay true. But it's a warning and I've, I see many do it. I've seen many do it. I've, I've heard of many doing it and I've seen many who have done it. And just in conversation, I can talk to people and I can know if they're there or if they're not. Again, I've, I've almost been there myself and I know what that's like and I see it. I see it and most people don't realize it, but I see it when I'm talking to people. So just be warned. The world doesn't love you back. The things of the world, the love of the world, it leaves you cold and it leaves you wanting more and it's, it'll never fulfill you. Only the love of Christ and only how he came and he gave his only begotten son and how he loved you back, even when you were unlovable, he loved you back. So keep your eyes on that. Keep your eyes on the prize and not on the things of the world that you think will satisfy you. That's my first part. And I'm going to encourage you with that again. The second part, uh, the big dash, where our, again our title of our sermon came from, the second part of this message was geared at helping anyone, both born again and non-born again people, to understand just how important it is that, number one, you take special care in how to read God's Word. Taking care to read it carefully and not foolishly. Uh, I did this by showing you the golden nugget of the wording of Paul's travel companions to Asia. The section that we read today about Paul and, and those that went with him to Asia could have easily been misunderstood. But notice with careful care in regard to the big dash and our digging into another translation, the Young's Literal, and taking notice of the word and that split Paul's travel companions and how they went to Asia, how it helped us to know what the section was truly saying, how, how it helped us to decipher and separate the, the things of the Bible that were really important. Uh, and Jesus tells us, not only am I telling you, take careful heed how you read God's word, but Jesus Christ told us in Luke 8.18, therefore take heed how you hear. Take heed how you understand the things of God. Are you understanding the things of God because they're benefiting you? Or are you understanding the things of God because they're the things that God says? This then led me to teach you just how important it is that you read God's Word in a correct vernacular or language or dialect or, or translation. The one, the translation that, that God speaks to you the most out of. I have a good friend that all he ever was taught, all he ever did, he only had a, a KJV, only a King James Version. And, and praise God, that the King James Version was the first and authorized, it paved the way for everything else, but it was the first Bible that was, that was made in the English language of the common English man or woman of that time. Okay, And praise God for it. But, uh, saying that, but, unfortunately today, I don't speak 1611 King James English. That's not what we speak here in this country. We, we really speak today a mutt American, okay? It's a, it's a kind of a garbled mess. We just make up our own words and, and so on and so forth. And so I don't speak 1611 King James English. 
And so I helped this brother out and I gave him a new King James, like a study Bible. And, and he's just loving it because he can actually understand it fully. And it makes sense to his mind. And it's saying the same thing just in our more current English language as it was, it was done in like 1974 or in the 1970s, 1980s versus 1611. And back in you know England and the English language that we don't even really speak today. We don't speak the King's English even today at all in America. We have again a, a mutt version of that. And so so it's so important that you read one of God's translations of his word that, that's awesome that you can understand. It's, it's an, internally it's super important that you understand what God and Jesus Christ want from you for your you know for you to do for your eternal life. God's allowed many different translations of his word in different vernaculars, languages, dialects in our modern world to help us understand his word accurately. For he wants us to understand what he says in his word so that we can become his friends and become saved from our sins and have eternal life with Jesus Christ. Or stay that way once we actually are saved, once we do become his friends. And again, it's, in, it's eternally important that we understand what God and Jesus Christ wants of us and what he wants us to do, the steps that he wants us to take so that we can be saved and stay that way. Remember, the Catholic Church of old tried to keep God's word only in the Latin vernacular that the common man didn't understand. And they did it purposely because they didn't, because the people didn't understand it, it was easy for them to twist the words of the translation of what they want, whatever they wanted to say, they could say because nobody knew it. You know, no, nobody common that was coming to Mass, nobody knew it. And so the, the, you could just make up whatever you wanted to say. And so by these men that gave their blood for the Word of God, they gave their blood so that people could understand it and, and God could speak to them in their own language and help them come to be saved. It's dangerous when we don't understand the Word of God. It's so dangerous, so dangerous, so dangerous. So get into a translation that you can understand. Um, Catholics teach, the, the, most of the world's religions teach that you got to be a good person. you got to do lots of good works in order to be saved. But we know that's not what Jesus Christ taught. And, and what he taught, and in essence, uh, on salvation is very simple. What he taught is very simple. The steps that he gave are not so simple. Because it involves our own hearts and the wickedness of our own hearts. And this is what Jesus Christ taught. If you're not saved or you want to become born again and you're not sure or you, know, you, don't, you never know what it, what it meant or you've never read the Bible or maybe you read it but you were kind of confused because somebody told you we're reading King James only and whatever. But here, here's what Jesus Christ said on how people become to be his friend how people come to be born again, how people come to be saved. And the most basic language that Jesus would have taught in his day, I'm going to teach it to you. Uh, and even if you don't really speak English fluently, you should be able to understand these words. Jesus Christ, Matthew 16, 24, 25. Then Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone desires to come after me, if anyone wants to be my friend, if anyone wants to be my disciple, the Bible says that Jesus Christ, down 14, 6, Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life, and no man comes to the Father except by me. So if you want to be saved and you want eternal life and you want to be God's friend, then you got to go through Jesus Christ. But you can't just go to Jesus Christ like you want. you got to go to Jesus Christ like he said. For in essence, it's, salvation is not ours. We didn't make the way. 
God and Jesus Christ made the way. So therefore, if you want salvation, you want a friendship with God, then you got to go to God through Jesus Christ the way he said and the way Jesus Christ said to come through him. So Matthew 16, 24, 25, Jesus said to his disciples, anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself. And as I already kind of even mentioned in this message already, we are born as the very rulers and gods of our lives. We are the masters of our lives. And if you can picture this picture, when we're born, until we, make, until we decide that that's not the way it wants it to be anymore, that's the way we want it to be, we are sitting on the thrones of our lives. Our lives, each one of our lives, are like a little kingdom. Like a little kingdom that we rule. And we are the king or queen that sits on our own throne of our own hearts of our own lives. So Jesus says, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself. That means take yourself off the throne of your life. You leading your life, no more. If you want to be my friend, you can't rule your life anymore. And for good reason. As I know well know, as you may well know, I ran my life into the ground. I destroyed my kingdom. When I was ruler over my kingdom, I destroyed it. I was destroying my family. I destroyed my my friends. I destroyed my parents. I beat them down. I was a terrible person. I was destroying my kingdom. And Jesus says, you want to be my friend? Deny yourself. Take yourself off of your throne of your life. And here's the solution. Take up his cross or your cross. or I'm sorry. Take up his cross, meaning the cross that he carried. And follow me, he says. So take yourself off the throne, and put me on there. That's a decision that you must make to stop letting yourself rule your life. And it's called surrender. Jesus is waiting for you to call out to him and say, Jesus Christ, I I surrender my life and my heart to you. Please come and sit on my throne. I don't want to rule my life anymore. And he goes on to say, what happens once we do that, verse 25, for whoever desires to save his life, if you want to rule your life, go ahead, you can. But he says, you'll lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake, meaning I'm, I'm the one that can save you. If you lose your life or step down off the throne of your heart and let me sit on there, those who lose their life for my sake will find it. This is why God and Jesus Christ allow his word to be in different languages and dialects and translations. He wants you to understand how to come to have a relationship with him now and an eternal life with him, an eternity with him forever after you die. And again, the simple words, but it's not easy to do. But I sure hope there's somebody out there listening that's willing to surrender today. Because as I preached today many times, several times so far, the world will not love you back. Jesus Christ is the one that loves you, and he proved his love for you, and he gave himself for you. He gave up his life on the cross for you. He just wants you to love him back. And we love him back by going to God through Jesus Christ his way, by surrendering the throne of our lives and our hearts that we sit on to Jesus Christ and letting Him rule our lives. That means making a decision to get in His Word and read His Word and say, okay, Jesus Christ, how do you say that I should live? And then obeying Him, making Him your master, 
allowing Him to be the leader of your life. If this is you and you need this today, He's waiting for you. Please come. You don't have tomorrow. You may not have tomorrow. Many people yesterday had a big plans in their future for, the, for their future, but guess what? They never made it. They're dead. Hopefully, they were saved. If not, then they're going to go to hell forever because they never became God's friend. So please turn today. Surrender today. God loves you and He's waiting for you. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for your great love. Thank you so much, Lord God, for your awesomeness, Lord God. Thank you so much for the variety of the ways in which you've allowed your word to be spread into this world so that people could understand it and be saved. For, Lord, that's your desire. Jesus, you said, take heed how you hear. Lord, we, we can hear the things we want and do the things we want and live our lives the way we want and be the master of our own lives the way we want. And you give us that right. But you said, since salvation is of you, and that's not how you offer salvation, Lord, you said that then we'd, our, we'd be destroyed. We, we walk in destruction. We don't want you. Then you give us what we want, and then we'll walk into eternity in destruction. But, Lord God, you, you gave us a way out, not only just to go to heaven with you forever, but, Lord, it is the best life now, Lord, when we're walking with you and you are our friend and you are on our side. Thank you, Lord God, that you loved us the way you do, Lord, even while we're in our stuff, even while we're in our mess, even while we're in our sin. I pray, please, dear God, help us to turn to you. Help those that are listening to you or to this message right now, Lord God, help them to turn to you right now and surrender and decide to follow Jesus Christ. And Lord, that you can make them born again. We thank you, we love you, and we praise you. And I ask all these things in Jesus Christ's mighty name. Amen.